0: join me in a, a moment of uh, calming uh, preparatory prayer gracious god as we study your word help us to grasp the good news of the forgiveness and freedom that's freely offered in jesus christ amen next slide is the the christian way of christ-centered spirituality is that a truly beautiful way of living a way of life that is best of all as paul says in corinthians next slide that depends i think on whether or not the gospel really is good news Uh, whether that good news of the Christian revelation claim is really, truly good. Onwards. The gospel can only be truly good news if it is actually true. Again, Paul from 1 Corinthians says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. Next. Well, Paul wrote his letter to the Galatian church, probably in 48 AD. He wrote to defend the truth of the gospel... ...against the teaching of the so-called Judaizers. In the process, he had to defend his own status as an apostle. That is, uh, a word meaning one sent. As an apostle sent by Jesus. Which the Judaizers had called into question. Next. The term Judaizer refers to these opponents of Paul and uh, Barnabas as well at the Jerusalem Council, you can read about in Acts 15, that happened uh, in the winter of uh, 48 to 49, so probably just after Paul had written Galatians. They sought to preach what Paul calls another gospel. They taught that in order to be right with God, a Christian must conform to the law of Moses. For men... Circumcision was promoted as necessary for salvation. I always seem to get the sermons that mention circumcision for some reason. Gentiles had to become Jewish proselytes first, and then they could come to Christ. Judaizers sought to to regulate the admission of Gentiles, of non-Jews, into the church through circumcision and the keeping of the ceremonial law insisting as uh, we get this quote from Acts 15 they say unless you are circumcised you cannot be saved these believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees posed a serious threat to the gospel of grace and to the universality of the church so, to recap uh, with our next slide uh, from last week, very briefly, beginning of Galatians, Paul lays out his stool. Paul, an apostle, a sent one, sent not from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Two the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Next. So the gospel message. Grace and peace to you. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins. Salvation, a forgiven eternal relationship with God, is not earned. It is received as a gift. That gospel message is sent via the divinely authorised gospel messenger. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men but by Jesus Christ and God the Father. When it comes to claims to know about God's will, some people have better rational credentials than others. Next. So now we're into today's reading. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel, the good news, The gospel I preached is not of human origin. It's no human invention. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. As the contemporary English version translates verse 12, this is the next slide now, it wasn't given or taught to me by some mere human. My message came directly from Jesus Christ. Now, although Jesus was, of course, fully human, he wasn't merely a man being also fully divine. The embodied revelation from and of God. So, next slide, Galatians 13 you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. As Acts 8.3 tells us on the next slide, Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. We're still on the next slide. Thank you. Next, Galatians one fifteen to seventeen. But but when God who sent me apart who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in or to me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. This would have happened around about AD thirty-four. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before me but I went into Arabia and later I returned to Damascus about AD 36. Next why did Paul go into Arabia to preach the gospel Both archaeology and ancient records indicate that the territory nearby Damascus, known as Arabia in Paul's day, was anything but devoid of human population. The sizable Nabataean cities of Bostra, Petra as illustrated here, Gerza and Philadelphia were located there. So near where Paul was converted and called, there were concentrations of Gentiles to whom he could preach Christ having already done so in the synagogues of Damascus. Next, Paul is claiming to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus. This is a first-hand account from AD 48. Given that Jesus was crucified in 33, this is not long after the event. We have this information from Paul claiming to be an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus who sent him to preach the gospel. As he says in 1 Corinthians, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? This claim is corroborated by chapters 22 and 26 of Acts where Paul's sometime traveling companion Luke summarizes speeches made by Paul. Next slide. In Acts, both Paul, as related by Luke, and Luke make it very clear that Paul's Damascus Road experience wasn't some just private, subjective religious experience, wasn't some uh, hallucination on Paul's part. Next slide. Yes, on the one hand, as the intended recipient of the revelation, only Paul saw Jesus. Only Paul suffered temporary blindness as a result of the encounter, perhaps because only Paul looked into the light to see Jesus. Only Paul understood what Jesus said to him. On the other hand, on the next slide, Paul's travelling companions all saw and reacted to the light. And Paul's travelling companions all Heard without understanding the voice. It's interesting to note that in Acts 26.14, where Paul is telling this story, Paul notes that Jesus spoke to him in the Aramaic dialect. So the lack of understanding on the part of Paul's companions of that voice may simply have been because they didn't speak Aramaic. Next slide. Moreover, Paul's experience of being called by Jesus doesn't end on the Damascus road. Luke recounts how Paul's encounter left him temporarily blinded and how Paul was healed when a Damascene Christian called Ananias came to Paul after both men were given a vision of the other from God. Placing his hands on Saul, Ananias said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. Next, these accurate visions. God even told Ananias, that Paul was staying in the house of Judas on Straight Street. Here's a 19th century photograph of Straight Street in Damascus. And the healing of Paul's blindness both confirmed to Paul and to the early church that Jesus had appeared to Paul and appointed him to preach. Next. Did Paul receive the creed about Jesus' resurrection appearances that he quotes in 1 Corinthians 15 in Damascus? Well, that may very likely be the case. But as Paul said, he didn't consult the Damascus Christians in order to know what the gospel he had to preach was or in order to know whether or not to believe it. Paul obviously knew about Christian theological claims, about the claims that Jesus had been resurrected and so on. He knew that before his conversion because he was opposed to Christianity and trying to stamp it out. But he only received the gospel as being true because of his meeting with Jesus. Next, on the one hand, Jesus may well have said things to Paul that weren't recorded for us by Luke in Acts or Paul in his letters. But on the other hand, as soon as the resurrected Jesus appears to Paul on the road to Damascus and says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, Paul could very easily deduce A, that Jesus and the apparently blasphemous claims Jesus made about himself had been spectacularly vindicated by God. And B, Jesus was now vouching for the God-vindicated status of the Christian church and its inclusive mix of Jews and Gentiles who did not obey the law of Moses. See Acts 4 to 40 for the Gentile mission pre-Paul's conversion. Next slide. As John Stott summarises, Paul already knew some of the facts about Jesus, but now he grasped their significance. What we were hearing about earlier, about that combination of head and heart knowledge, that knowledge that makes a difference to who you are and how you live. Next. Then, after three years, i.e. in the third year after meeting Jesus, about AD 36, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's the Aramaic name for Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other, other apostles, Oh, only James, the Lord's brother. You can practically hear Paul dictating it to his scribe at this point. I assure you before God, I put myself on oath, what I'm writing to you is no lie. That is, Paul had been preaching the gospel for years before he met with any of the other apostles. Therefore, his authority as an apostle did not derive from theirs. Uh, That was the next slide, so two slides on. Galatians 2, 1 to to 2. Thank you. Then after 14 years, i.e. 14 years after meeting Jesus, early 48 AD-ish, Have a look at Acts 11, 27 to 30. I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also with me. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Next. That Paul wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my rates in vain doesn't mean that he was having doubts about the truth of the gospel. Timothy Keller says, nothing was threatening Paul's certainty, but something was threatening his fruitfulness. If the other apostles did not confirm his message and renounce the false teachers, it would be very hard for him to retain his converts. Paul's trip was not for fear that the Jerusalem Apostles didn't have the true gospel. What he did fear was that the Jerusalem Apostles might not stand up to the false teachers. Next. Yet, even Titus, who was with me, was, uh, was not compelled to be circumcised, even though he was Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, to make us slaves. But we did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel good news might be preserved for you. That the Jerusalem church leadership, next slide, E. e. James and Peter and so on, Didn't require Titus, the Greek Christian, to be circumcised, proves that the original apostles appointed by Jesus agreed with Paul that salvation was not by keeping the law or by having faith in Jesus and keeping the law, but by placing one's faith, one's trusting allegiance in Jesus. Full stop. Next. In other words, this theory has uh, circulated around some quarters. You can probably still find it on the internet, like many things. Paul did not invent Christianity. David Wenham says in his uh, wonderful little book, Did St. Paul Get Jesus Right? The Christian good news about Jesus' atoning death and resurrection as God's divine son goes right back to the beginning of the Christian era and did not originate with Paul. Paul and the Jerusalem apostles provide independent testimony to us, not only to the content of the gospel, but to the fact that the church received this gospel as a revelation from God through historical events involving Jesus. Next. So Paul's uh, account here in our reading uh, eliminates claims of the Judaizers such as, oh that's what Paul thinks well here's what we think and it's just as valid or Paul's message is fine but it's incomplete or Paul's message is simply his message it's not what the church teaches in Jerusalem no, no, no Next slide. Uh, I've been reading recently John Lennox's excellent new little book, uh, Can Science Explain Everything? And I was astonished to find in here uh, a sort of modern day analogy to what Paul writes about to the Galatians. Christ is still uh, revealing and confirming his gospel of grace to us today. This is not just a history lesson. This is something that's going on and is available to us all here and now. Let me read to you uh, this fascinating account uh, from John Lennox. He said, I'd been lecturing in a church in northern Hungary and was on my way home via train uh, to catch a flight home uh, from Vienna. I found my reserved seat in a second class carriage and sat down. At once I began to feel uneasy about the seat, an experience I've never had before. It then occurred to me that I should go and sit in first class. This conviction became so strong that I got out of the carriage, walked up to the front of the train and found there were two first class carriages. One was shabby and old and the other seemed brand new. I tried to get into the shiny carriage, but bizarrely found I could not move one leg in front of the other. But when I turned towards the shabby carriage, I found I could move, so I dived in just as the train pulled out of the station. I just about fell into the seat next to the door of the compartment, since the two window seats were occupied. Uh, I wished them good day and we chatted a little about our respective jobs. Uh, They were both senior international lawyers, one an ambassador, the other a judge. Uh, I explained I'm a mathematician. During the journey one of them uh, indicated a cemetery through the window and asked no one in particular, are there any Christians in this country? I replied by telling them that there were indeed many Christians, and I had been spending a week with some of them, teaching them from the Bible. After more conversation, during which I said that my Christian faith was was evidence-based, the other man said this, Look, we have another three hours on this train. Would you be prepared to explain to us the difference between Christianity and other religions? I noticed that the floor of the carriage was quite dusty, and so I drew the diagram at the top of this page, next slide, on the floor (laughs) with my finger. Uh, Would it be fair to say that your religion amounts to this? There is a door of initiation at the beginning, perhaps a ceremony of some kind, or it might even be your birth into a particular group that leads to your starting a path or way indicated by the wavy line. You have people to teach you and guide you indicated by the academic hats and the path goes up and down according to your success in following the path. You then come at death to a final assessment and whether you are permitted to advance into the glorious world to come depends on your good deeds outweighing your bad ones. It's very much like a university course, no matter how good or kind your professors and teachers are, they can't guarantee you a degree since that depends entirely on your merit at the final exams. The two men agreed. However, the Christian message does not consist in a merit-based system and acceptance by God at the final judgment. Christianity teaches something utterly radical at this point. It tells us that we can be accepted at the beginning of the path. It teaches that the initial step is not a rite or a ritual or a ceremony performed on an infant or an adult, but it is a step of commitment to a person. Jesus Christ that involves believing that he is God incarnate and is coming to the world to give his life as a ransom for our sins which alienate us from God. Moreover, the evidence that this is true is, as the early Christian Apostle Paul said, that God has given assurance to all that this is so by raising Jesus from the dead. Then the ambassador said to the judge, There is a great difference between Christianity and what we usually think of as religion. Turning to me, he said, and it all depends on who Jesus Christ really is. Exactly, I replied. And then they told me the following story. That weekend, they'd been attending a high-level conference in Vienna and found they had a day free. They asked for an embassy car to take them to Budapest. And after spending most of the day there, they started on the return journey. Their car broke down just outside the train station, and they had no option but to take the train. We don't travel by train, they explained. We haven't been on one in years. Then we meet you on the train and have a conversation of a kind we've never experienced. How do you account for that? Very simply, I replied, I think there is such a thing as divine guidance, and this is an example of it. Quite as spectacular as St Paul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus but it is still an analogy of the fact that God is revealing and validating his gospel of grace even today. Finally a few slides to end with. So what? What's the take-home message here? Timothy Keller's uh, book, Galatians for You, on the next slide, I really recommend it if your home group is going to go through following these messages. It's a really good uh, accessible study guide and I'm just going to uh, quote from him because he just says this so well. The gospel leads to cultural freedom. Moralistic religion tends to press its members to adopt very specific rules and regulations for dress and daily behaviour. If your salvation depends upon obeying the rules, then you want your rules to be very specific, doable and clear. You don't want, love your neighbour as yourself. You want, don't go to the movies or don't drink alcohol. Next, if the false teachers had had their way, an Italian or African could not become a Christian without first becoming culturally Jewish. Christians would have to form little cultural ghettos in every city. It would mean far too much emphasis on external cultural separation rather than on internal distinctiveness of spirit, motive, outlook, perspective. Next. Though not free from the moral law as a way to live, Christians are free from it as a system of salvation. We obey not in the fear and insecurity of hoping to earn our salvation but in the freedom and security of knowing that we're already saved in Christ. We obey in the freedom of gratitude. Next, both the false teachers and Paul told Christians to obey the Ten Commandments but for totally different reasons and motives. And unless your motive for obeying God's law is the grace, gratitude motive of the gospel, you are in slavery. The gospel provides freedom culturally and emotionally. The other gospel destroys both. Next. So Paul's gospel is true, because he received it from the resurrected Jesus. And it agrees with the gospel the Jerusalem apostles received from the resurrected Jesus. Next. The other gospel of the Judaizers is, to use a modern term, fake news. It's a fake news gospel based on human adherence to tradition and contradicted by the true gospel revealed by Jesus. Next. Therefore, Paul's gospel is truly good news and the Judaism's alternative is bad news and finally therefore Paul's gospel invites us into a truly beautiful life of allegiance to the one who said I am the way and the truth and the life and if you're sitting here today and you're thinking I don't really know that freedom that, that certainty in God's love, uh, that freedom to obey out of thankfulness rather than out of fear that I might not be good enough, then there are those here today who would be more than happy to pray with you and to introduce you to an allegiance to a Christ who died for you, who rose for you to prove what he'd done for you and wants to give you a life of freedom in him and not fear. Amen.